our family of listeners is growing every week. Thanks for listening live and through all our digital broadcasting channels. Spread the word to your friends to join our weekly conversation. It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions, our website, ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Margaret Thatcher once said, if you set out to be liked, you would be prepared to compromise on anything at any time, and you would achieve nothing. Good evening, I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. And I'm Jonathan, and that different perspective has its basis in three things. Godly principles, family values, honest dialogue, always done in a politically free zone. Folks, thanks for joining us this evening. This is a call-in format. We are caller-friendly. So let's get started. Jonathan, what's up? What's happening? What's new? What's great? What's wonderful? How's life? Just talk to me. (laughs) Well, Rick, we have a very interesting question this evening, and that is, how much should Christians compromise? And our theme text is found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing for selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Okay, so the question is, how much should Christians compromise? You know, the ability to compromise is a lost art. We have become so diverse in our thinking, so polarized in our viewpoints, and so set in our conclusions as unequivocally right, that the mere idea of compromise is in some cases viewed as a repulsive evil. It's black or white, Rick, right? Now hold on. (laughs) Now look, there are times when compromise should be off the table. There are times when that which is right and sound should not be approached with the idea of watering it down for the sake of making someone or some group or some sect happy. But the question is, when? When do we stand as an immovable force? And when do we bend and acquiesce to include the preferences of others? Fortunately for us, these very issues existed in biblical times, so we actually do have a pretty clear set of guidelines to follow. So, is compromise good? Yes. All right. Is compromise bad? Yes. Are you contradicting yourself? (laughs) (laughs) Look, folks, let's figure this out. Let's figure this out. Jonathan, this is one of those conversations that is is it has enduring principles uh and it i take great heart in this conversation because 2000 years ago they went through the exact same kinds of things with the exact same kinds of passion that we go through today and the beautiful thing is you had the apostles there and you had those who had been on the scene when Jesus was there and they worked out a method for dealing with all of this so, and that's good news for us. Well, it is, because, frankly, we need help on a situation like this. You know it. So, so the early church, the early Christian church, was, it, when you think about it, was a really curious combination of devout Jews who became dedicated followers of Jesus, 
And it was also a wide variety of people from various pagan backgrounds. Each group, the Jewish background and the pagan background, each group was drawn to Christianity by the hope of the kingdom that Jesus brought. And in their coming to Christianity, each group brought with them some of their past. Now, that's tough, Rick, Well, because everyone was so different. Right. And, and, and that's, it, it's tough. You're right. But you know what? It's natural. When we come to some place, we always bring our traditions, our previous thinking, our, 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 our methods of thinking, our previous experiences, what we've always deemed to be true. We've all, we just drag it along. And when you do that, that's to be expected. But if you're coming up to a higher place, you have to figure out how to let go. And that's where the issues come in. And that's where compromise becomes a very, very important part of, of, of our lives. So this happened in the early church. Okay, So as years went by, you, you, know, you had uh, Jesus on the scene, and then he's crucified. And then, remember, the day of Pentecost. Sure. Okay. So from the day of Pentecost on, you have the birth of the true Christian church. And you have it growing and developing through the acts of the apostles and all of those things. So as the years went by, the cultural differences did not subside. And see, here is where you say, uh-oh, because if we've brought baggage, excess baggage with us, we should be willing to be able to or figure out that we should be shedding some of that excess baggage as we go. But as the years went by, their cultural differences really did not subside, but rather they grew into divisive matters that each side saw as a matter of principle. And Rick, principle is a challenge for us. Our human nature, sometimes we make things principle that shouldn't be. Yeah, sometimes we take deep, passionate preferences Mm-hmm. And we proclaim them to be principles, and we're gonna yeah. have, we're gonna have to figure that out as we go through this. So, so folks, already, you know, what we're doing is we're stepping on everybody's toes already, just right right at the very beginning, because the art of compromise is a difficult art. So, you you have everybody bringing their baggage and considering their baggage principles. Now, almost twenty years had passed since Pentecost when the following events that we're going to talk about took place. And that's from Acts 15. Right. Now, when we read this, I, I always thought that this was really quickly after Pentecost. I had no idea, Rick, it was 20 years later. Yeah, 20 years is a long time. And a lot of times, especially when we read the New Testament, it sounds like, and then next week, the Apostle Paul was on this trip. And the <laughs> exactly. week after, he was over there. Then he was imprisoned. And then, and, and then they had the conference at Jerusalem, you know, three weeks later. No, this is 20 years, 20 years after Pentecost. So a long time had passed, and they, these issues, these difficulties that needed attention were growing and festering and becoming, um, becoming overwhelming within the church. And, and Jonathan, the thing is that the, the, the issues that we're going to talk about tonight had the potential to destroy early Christianity. 
It really could have destroyed the entire Christian movement. And when we see the wisdom that the apostles and the elders applied back then, that's what we want to learn from. So let's go to Acts chapter 15. You mentioned that. This is the chapter that we're going to be focus on, focusing on for our conversation this evening. So, Jonathan, I'm going to take Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 6, and we're going to break it up into pieces. Then certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers... Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. All right. So here is where what the issue in in a very short, clear-cut, definitive statement. Here's the issue. Some of the brothers, some individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brotherhood that you had to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses. Otherwise, you can't be saved. Otherwise, they're saying you can't be a Christian. You Gentiles won't fit in if you don't circumcise. Right. So now that's a pretty significant statement to make. And you think, well, why would they even say that? And we'll get to that in in another segment or two. But here's the thing. This was a definitive, clearly stated, uncompromising pronouncement of belief. No give here, Rick. No. See, and that's the point. There was no give. There was a line in the sand drawn right there, and it was a very clear-cut line, and it's either you're in or you're out according to this particular doctrine. So they made this a deep, divisive principle that you either followed or you didn't. That was a problem. So what happens? We go a little bit further. Uh, now, Acts chapter uh, 15. So, Acts chapter 15, 1 introduces the issue. Okay, so it's, it's on the table for us. Verses 2 and 3. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles and the elders. So they were sent on their way by the church And as they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, they reported the conversation of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the believers. Okay, so what happens is that uh, the the Paul and Barnabas are out establishing churches throughout uh, throughout the land, and they are in Antioch, and this this belief system comes up, and it's not correct according to what Jesus stood for. And so it says that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. So now you're thinking, what, are they starting to you know, come to fisticuffs here? You know, oh, yeah? <laughs> I mean, so what does it mean? So no small dissension. What, is that, what does that mean? Well, Rick, it means a standing, by implication, a popular uprising, a figuratively a controversy. So there was a, sta- a kind of like a standoff. You're saying this and I'm saying that. And both of us can't be right. That's really what the, the standoff looks like. It says, so they had no small dissension, and they had no small debate. What does the, the word debate mean? A seeking, a questioning, a debate, a matter of controversy. And there's something about that that we're going to come back to a little bit later. But debate in those days, according to this description, is not like debate today. We'll, we'll, we'll develop that uh, a little bit later. But, but Jonathan, we want to talk about the art of compromise not just in biblical terms. We want to put it in terms of just regular everyday life. And we thought that one way to do this would be to look at American history. And as we look at American history, 
one of the things we find is the founding of the United States of America was, was built upon some tremendous compromises. And so with the recent election, this is what gave me this particular idea. With the recent election, you had uh, Donald Trump win the electoral college vote, but Hillary Clinton win the popular vote. And there's lots and lots of people that say, well, that doesn't make any sense. If you win the popular vote, you should win the election. I don't get it. And, of course, if you just look at it from that standpoint, you say, yeah, you're right. You don't get it. And there's a point there. So why do we have those two pieces working together? Let's go back to the founding of the basis for that electoral college. It's really interesting because what it shows us, it shows us great minds trying to work together to find a way to establish a country of freedom. That's what they were trying to do. So we're going to go to this um, YouTube video, uh, The Great uh, Compromise, explained in five minutes. Uh, it's Hip Hughes History. And this guy, he, he tries to be funny a lot. <laughs> sometimes he is and sometimes he's not. <laughs> so, so just take his uh, sarcasm and so forth and just, just kind of go, go with it. But he does a really good job explaining a very, very significant compromise that really helped to found the United States of America. So let's listen to this introduction. All right, guys, so 1787, we're talking Constitutional Convention. And just to frame it out really quick, this is basically a convention to originally amend the Articles of Confederation to fix the kind of crises that the United States as a country was facing. So there's different factions at the convention. Some of the other compromises, like the Bill of Rights and the Three-Fifths Compromise, deal with different factions. But this great compromise is over the biggest word of them all, and that's representation. So we're really talking at the end of the day about small states versus large states and their view about state representation in this new government. So you think about it, 1787, and again, that's just, that's just a few years after the, uh, the signing of the Declaration of Independence in 1776, they're already having issues. They're already having issues with how representation should work so everybody gets, uh, gets a voice. And one of the issues was there were some states that had lots of people in them, and there are other states that had fewer people. And the ones with fewer people are saying, you know, we need to have a voice too. And the other ones with the lots of people are saying, well, we've got a lot of people. You, you should listen to us. And, and so there was a problem. Now, what did they do? They talked about it. They worked through it. And it's a great, great example for us. And we're going to keep coming back to that and look at how they worked through it uh, throughout the program. So... A little bit of historical example of, of compromise. Let's get back to the scriptures now. Remember in Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas uh, were sent to Jerusalem to discuss this issue about, okay, do you have to be circumcised to become a Christian? Um, they also had a firm and clearly stated uncompromising pronouncement of their belief. And their belief was, no, you don't. Don't bother to be circumcised. Right. Yeah. Don't bother me anymore. You don't. Okay. So let's go uh, back to again Acts chapter fifteen verses four through six. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and said, "It is necessary for them to be circumcised," and ordered to keep the law of Moses. Okay. So at that point, they got to Jerusalem. They were welcomed. And we're going to come back over these verses in, in, uh, in the next segment. Uh, but some of the believers who had been Pharisees said, oh, no, 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 no. Look, there's some things that have to be maintained from the history of Jesus himself. 
And, you know, they got a point. Jesus was a Jew. Jesus, better than anybody, fulfilled and followed the Jewish law. And they're saying, you can't throw all those things away. Jesus even did them. So, you know, you've got, you've got some power behind that argument. Uh, and verse 6. The apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter. So they came together because there was a problem. And they decided, rather than just getting all ruffled and all hot under the collar, they would actually, here's an idea, they'd talk about it. And they'd take both sides of an issue, and they'd sit down together, and they'd discuss it. So there, there's, there's uh, three key observation points from Acts 15, verses 1 through 6, Jonathan. What are they? Well, Rick, the first is the disagreement was dramatic as it put to question the very definition of Christian. All right, so this was really important. It was fundamental to what it meant to actually be a Christian. That's the first point. What's the second point? The dissension was so sharp that a special meeting of apostles and elders was convened. Because this dissension was a dissension, a disagreement that had grown over the last 20 years. And it had grown in these different areas. And it's not like now, Jonathan, where you know, somebody from one place can just drive to another place and get there in 40 minutes. You know, so you had these, these localities that developed under certain ways of looking at things, and they became firm in that. And then as one would venture out and another would venture out, then you have them, them, them mixing, and that's where you have the, the problem developing. And what's the third point? The meaning would be a critical event to determine the very future of Christianity. So they realized that they had to have this meeting where they could actually talk about the importance of understanding how to deal with the matter of the law and specifically with the matter of circumcision as a Christian. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick. Tonight's episode is How Much Should Christians Compromise? Coming up, why the obsession with the right of circumcision? Yeah, why that? That's next. Listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome back. Tonight's episode is How Much Should Christians Compromise? We're live Monday evening from 8 to 10 Eastern, and that means we're on right now. Join our conversation by calling 866 985 4255. That's 866 985 for all. You can now message us on your smartphone app during the program, and we'll try to share your comment on air. Okay, so Jonathan, as we get back to it, we're talking about a, a great conversation and discussion that happened in the New Testament that lays out all of what we need to know about how to successfully compromise. Now, does that mean Christians should compromise on, on everything or a lot of things? Not necessarily. The battles have to be picked, and we have to be careful about them. So as we go through this, we need to bring that up and say, okay, well, what kinds of things should you compromise on? What kinds of things shouldn't you compromise on? And, and Rick, we have to watch out for our emotions with this. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, you know, most of the time in things like this, our greatest enemy is not the person sitting across from us who disagrees with us. 
but it's our own, like you said, it's our own emotion about the matter. Yeah. Can yeah. I see clearly without emotion and then act in a godly way. That's really what we want to get to. And that's exactly what they did in Acts chapter 15. And that's why it was so such a great, great uh, example for us. So, so Jonathan, at the end of the last segment, you asked the question, well, why the obsession with the rite of circumcision? And you think about that and say, yeah, well, why, why would they be obsessed with something like that? Here's the thing. Just like when we started the program, we, we were commenting on, wow, this was 20 years after Pentecost. It's like, wow, I didn't know that. Exactly. Well, here's another thing that probably most people don't know, and that is circumcision was actually more ingrained in Jewish history and their thinking even than the law itself. And you say, well, wait, how do you know that? Because it was there before. Let's go back to where it started. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 14. We're going to read selected verses here. Uh, and this is with Abram, Father Abraham, who is, you know, in Jewish thinking, one of the greatest men of all time, and rightfully so, because he's the one given the promise that carried them through all those generations. So Genesis, uh, Genesis 17, 1 through 14, selected verses. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. As for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. All right. So the first thing that happens to Abram, he is obedient to God. And God does something very significant. He changes his name. And, he, and it sounds like well, there's not like a, such a big change. It goes from Abram to Abraham. Like So, so what's the difference? Why, why, why does he do that? How come... You add a syllable. What What is that supposed to mean? So does it change the relationship between God and Abraham? Well, it does because of the meaning of the name change. God is saying something to Abraham in that name change. So, so Jonathan, go over with us. What What does his name, did his name mean, and what does his new name mean? All right. Instead of Abram, which means a high father, he was to be called Abraham, which means father of a multitude of nations. So he changed his name to Abraham to say to him, I have something very special for you, Abram. This is why I'm calling you Abraham, because you're going to be the father of a multitude of nations, and in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So you should have a higher name, a more meaningful name than you already have. So God himself changes the relationship in the changing of the name. And we see that a lot in Scripture. The Apostle Paul was previously Saul of Tarsus. That's right. Uh, Peter was uh, pre uh, previously uh, uh, Simon. Simon. Right. So yeah. there's several name changes that put somebody in a different position the changing of Abram's name to Abraham was significant, but that's just the beginning of what God was doing at that point in time. Now we go back to Genesis, again, back to Genesis chapter 17. Now let's go down to verses uh, 7 and 8. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land where you are now an alien, all the land of Canaan for a perpetual holding 
and I will be their God. So now God expands it. Not only am I changing your name to mean father of a multitude of nations, but I'm going to establish my promise between you and your offspring. So this covenant includes the blessing of his posterity, and it includes his posterity blessing the world, and it includes the land of Israel as well. And Jonathan, the interesting thing about the land of Israel, let's diverge for a moment and get to some some current events. The land that God gave to Abram, to Abraham, is the land that always seems to be in question. And what we are going to see historically unfold before our eyes is a continual fight over that land. And we are going to see, according to prophecy, Israel prevail unequivocally in keeping their land. Unequivocally. Whether anybody helps them or not, matter of fact, nobody will. But that was the promise of God, and when God makes a promise, the promise comes true. So, we see that this promise is growing, it's getting bigger, it's getting stronger, and it's including more and more things. You've got a name change, you've got his posterity, and now you've got the land. So let's go to verses 10, and then skip down to part of 11, and then to verse 14. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Any uncircumcised male shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So now, on top of all of these other things, on top of the name change, on top of the posterity, on top of the blessing of the the people, on top of the land, it says, here's the symbol of all of this. And it's the circumcision of every circumcision of every male. So the symbol of this multifaceted covenant, the very symbol of it, was the rite of circumcision. So we can see why this rite was so deeply ingrained in the Jewish mind. It, uh, Rick, when, when was this given? How many years ago? Uh, this is uh, well from here. We're talking four forty five hundred years ago. Wow! And it, so it was over two thousand years before Jesus. So I mean, there's a there's a there's a long period of time where this was in place. It was a symbol of God's promise over four hundred years before the Ten Commandments were given. Oh wow, that's huge. Okay, so everybody looks at the 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 the, the Jewish people and their journey, and they look at the Ten Commandments as the symbol of that. But this symbol was there generations beforehand so you so there was this super important (laughs) thing that was being brought out here right and it's a legitimate gripe i mean it's really deeply legitimate when you look at it from the history of all of judaism and you think look you have to keep this because this was there before everything this was there right at the very beginning of what abraham did this was there right to get things started. Thanks for listening to Christian Questions Live. Call us now at 866-985-4255 or ask your questions and leave your comments at christianquestions.com. Yeah, folks, we'd love to hear from you, especially using the app, sending us messages through the app. It's such a great way uh, to communicate and we try to get those comments on uh, if we can fit them in. So please uh, avail yourself of that. So, so Jonathan, you've got this this deep-seated, not merely tradition, but requirement from God. 
who is anybody to say you shouldn't do that anymore? That's how powerful this argument was. So to compromise or not to compromise, that's the question. That's the question. <laughs> All right. So let, let's, let's, let's pause on that. We've established why this issue was such a deeply important issue to so many early Christians because they had such a strong Jewish heritage. Uh, Jonathan, we've got a couple of quotes here. The first quote is going to give us a strong sense about compromise. So let's read the quote and then just got to get a sense of what the, the individual is saying. This is from Andrew Carnegie. The morality of compromise sounds contradictory. Compromise is usually a sign of weakness or an admission of defeat. Strong men don't compromise, it is said, and principles should never be compromised. Okay, so you read that and you say, all right then. <laughs> I guess we shouldn't be doing too much compromise. Man up. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, really. And Andrew Carnegie, I mean, he was a very, very strong and powerful leader, got a lot of things done. And he makes a great point. Oftentimes, compromise is a sign of weakness. Now, keep that thought in mind. Let's go to another quote. This quote is from Paul Kagame. And what, what is his quote? Let no one think that flexibility and a predisposition to compromise is a sign of weakness or a sellout. Uh, what? <laughs> so, he's right and he's right. How can they both so be which right? One? <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and see, that's the difficulty with compromise, is there are times and there are places where compromise should not be part of things. It's just, it's just one of those things that we should say, no, it's not, in, it's not something that we should do. And there are other times we should seek to find a place of compromise so that we can work out an issue with those who are heading generally in the same direction as us. So now that's a little bit uh, benign in terms of that's not getting into anybody's specific life. Um, but let's, let's just give a quick for instance. In a marriage, compromise is one of the most basic, fundamental uh, management tools for, ma for marriage that has ever existed. You're right. And in all of the all of the experiences where I have had an opportunity to talk to those who were getting married or who were married and maybe having some challenges, one of the things I always talk about with compromise is I look at each of them and say, look, it's your job to compromise at least 60% of the time. So when I'm the message I'm trying to send is you've got to go That's more than half. That's right. <laughs> you have to go more than halfway. Compromise isn't just saying, okay, I'm going to go right to that halfway line. Now it's your turn. Compromise is being willing to, to take extra steps out because the two of you are trying to find common ground, common direction. So that's such an important part of learning how and when to compromise. Let's go back to um, our American history lesson, The Great Compromise Explained in Five Minutes uh, from Hip Hughes History. And uh, he's going to give, remember, it's the establishment of representation in 1787. They had the Articles of the Confederation, and they weren't working right. And they had issues, and people were complaining. So now they have to come together and figure this out. So he's going to give, in this particular soundbite, the, the, the opinion that the larger states had in this particular matter. Federalism, in a sense, is kind of the power that we give the government. So that power is always divided between 
federal government and state government. So what we're really deciding in the Great Compromise is how do I represent the states and the federal government so we have one country? And there's basically two different viewpoints. Um, we have large states, and they actually came up with a plan called the Virginia Plan. Um, Edmund Randolph kind of wrote this plan, and he basically believes that, look, we need a two-house Congress. We do need an upper house and a lower house like Great Britain has, but it should be all based on population, therefore giving large states a larger voice. At the end of the day, the large states, most of them at least, see this as a union of people, so therefore the people should be represented as to where they live, so large states would get a larger hand in that. So, and there's a lot of sense to that, right? You know, well, the small states may have something to say about that. Next segment, they will. <laughs> but you know, you get a sense of it. Say, yeah, well, this is a union of people, and so the people really need to have the voice, and they're right. But there is another side to it, and we'll have to get to that later because that's part of what you do when you are trying to figure out how to make compromise work. So let's get back to our discussion. Uh, with the apostles in Acts chapter 15. You know, it, it seems probable that the Apostle Paul saw this dissension brewing. Remember we said it was 20 years after Pentecost that it happened. That's right, okay. yes. It's possible that he saw this brewing long before this meeting and actually tried to address it in his own way in smaller doses, if you will. We have evidence of that in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to jump to verse 7 and then verse 9. Then after fourteen years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up in response to a revelation that I laid before them, though only in a private meeting with the acknowledged leaders. The gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. So, interesting thing. The Apostle Paul, we always see him as this great, powerful no-holds-barred leader that just is charging forward all the time. And yet, after 14 years, he goes to Jerusalem with Barnabas um, uh, and, and Titus, and he's sitting with the leaders, the, the, true, the, the church leaders in, in Jerusalem, and he's, and he's telling them what he's been doing. And why is he doing it? He wanted to check to make sure he was walking the walk the way Jesus wanted him to, right in witnessing and, right. and sharing the good news. Was he missing? Was he off the mark? Was he on? He, he wanted to get wise minds to, to listen to make sure he was doing what he needed to do. So in that great, powerful leadership, there's great and powerful humility. That's humble leadership. Paul preached the radical gospel with full conviction, and yet he sought the input and the blessing of those in whose shadow his spiritual opportunity was born. See, he knew that there were other spiritual minds, and he had the good sense, the spiritual sense, to, to check what he was doing against their experience and their thinking. That is a great way to open the door to compromise. Let's go to verses 7 and 9. When they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel for the circumcised, and when James and Cephas and John who were acknowledged pillars, recognized the grace that I had been given to me, they gave to Barnabas and me the right hand of fellowship, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So the, the Apostle Paul had a crystal clear understanding of the issues, and he just planted seeds of truth. What he was doing here is he's saying, look, um, 
we see that I have been given a specific direction to go. We see that James and Cephas, who is Peter, um, were, were supposed to uphold the gospel given to the Jews. Now, Peter opened the door to the Gentiles. That's right. But that work was largely developed by the Apostle Paul. Everybody understood it. Everybody knew that each had a different part to play. And so they were all working together, and I, the Apostle Paul understands this. And he says, so we were all working really hard, and he's planting seeds of truth. So this brings us to our first really important point on compromise. Biblical principles for approaching matters that need compromise with the world and with other Christians. What's the first biblical principle that we can draw from this discussion about Acts chapter 15? Well, Rick, it's plant and cultivate the seeds necessary to deal with the possible controversy. All right, so controversies are possible. Controversies are probable. We have to plant the seeds that are going to help us to be able to deal with all of those things. Otherwise, there is no chance. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick. Tonight's episode is, How Much Should Christians Compromise? Coming up, so how should we treat those we disagree with when it comes to possible compromise? That's next. You're listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome back. Tonight's episode is How Much Should Christians Compromise? We're live Monday evening from 8 to 10 Eastern. That means we're on right now. Join our conversation by calling 866-985-4255. That's 866-985-FOR-ALL. Or you can message us on your app. We want to hear what you have to say about today's topic. Post your comments on our Facebook page and our blog. Go to ChristianQuestions.com. So, Jonathan, as we uh, come to this next segment, we've got to get into the body of talking about compromise. And that is, how do you deal, how do you treat those we disagree with when it comes to the possibility of compromise? Because usually, when it's something that we're really passionate about, you don't really want to even talk to them, do you? <laughs> no. <laughs> Sit him down, <laughs> muffle him, <laughs> and let's get on with business, okay? <laughs> so we're focusing on a properly compromise. Let's go back to Acts chapter 15 and relook at some of those first few verses. Um, so again, we're going to go back over a few of those verses and now draw some of the lessons for how to do it from the apostles. Uh, so our next biblical principle for approaching matters that need compromise, the first one was planting seeds. Okay, That's plant right. these seeds along the way to prepare everybody's mind. What's the second and, principle? And Rick, that gives clarity, doesn't it? It does. When it, you plant the seeds. Right, because it helps people to think about, oh, there's another way to look at this. And once you get people used to an idea, it's easier to talk to them about it if they've had exposure to it beforehand. So it Excellent. does. It gives great clarity. This next, uh, what, what, what's the, the second principle? It's receive. Those with whom we are challenged. And Rick, this tests our conscience. Right, because well, what do you mean receive those with whom we are challenged? Well, let's look at the verse in Acts 15. Let's go back to verse 4. This is a simple, simple principle. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders. Okay, so it says they were received of the church. What does that mean? 
Well, Rick, the word receive means admit or by implication, delight in. So they were delighted in, okay? There was a sense of, of I'm so happy to see you. And it wasn't a facade. It was real. But wait a minute. Didn't they disagree, maybe, with the person coming? They th- thoroughly disagreed. And they're delighting in? And that's the beauty of Christian wow. thinking. That's the beauty of Christian action. Hebrews twelve six is a great verse on this. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Okay. So, every son whom the Lord receives goes through trials and difficulties. Sometimes, it's a trial and a difficulty for us to really delight in somebody that we don't agree with. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> You're right. You're right. <laughs> that's a hard thing. But that's a Christian principle. If you say, if you claim the name of Christ, that is how you are supposed to act. That's the guideline. And when there's a disagreement and there's a need for a discussion that, that may end up in compromise, we need to be able to delight in their presence. And don't walk away from them. <laughs> right. Right. Receive. That means to bring them in and to have them happily in your company. And that's hard we, because we're so polarized in our thinking. So, I mean, how often do we view those with another point of view as more of an enemy than a friend? How often are we thinking about how to upend their perspective when we meet? You know, how often do we want to knock them out the second they walk in the door? Like, I don't even want to... It's because they're wrong, Rick. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I know. That's the problem. That's the whole problem is is we look at it and we say it's because they're wrong. And when we say that, we are completely, utterly, and totally missing the point of what our Christian responsibility should be and how our Christian thinking should work. So delight, delighting in them is such a very, very, very important point. Uh, Jonathan, we have a call. We've got Julius on the line. Julius from Connecticut. Welcome to Christian Questions. Good evening, Rick and Jonathan. Good evening. What a challenge to humility. Yes, it is. To display humility, uh, to, to admit you know, uh, when uh, there is room for latitude, you know, room to uh, negotiate and to give. Uh, three mindsets come to mind. Uh, uh, number one, uh, when you said the word emotional, it, it, it triggered uh, two others in my head. Uh, well, you mentioned emotional, and then there is the, uh, the rational, and there is the uh, spiritual. Those three, three mindsets. And... Uh, uh, the challenge is to work them harmoniously, you know. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, you remind me when you read about Acts 15. What a what a magnificent display of, uh, of wisdom in that chapter. Uh, you remind me that uh, that's when Paul and Barnabas split. Subsequently, Silas accompanied the Apostle Paul the rest of the way. Because they they had uh, great uh, disagreements uh, too, but anyway, uh, uh, it's uh, it's a challenge to uh, to uh, uh, admit when we you know we are wrong on when there is room to to give. Uh, again, humility is a great thing. Uh, I leave you with uh, with an interesting saying. It says, uh, "Quote." 
the less people know, the more stubbornly they know it. <laughs> well God said. God bless. Good night. Thank you, Julius. We appreciate your call. Take uh, care. Very, very, uh, very well said. Um, and, and you know, I, Jonathan, I really liked what Julius said. The three mindsets: we have an emotional mindset, we have a rational mindset, and we have a spiritual mindset. And it's so easy to park ourselves with the emotional mindset that it skews the rational and it ignores the spiritual. Oh, good point. And we can't do that. So, Julius, thanks so much for those thoughts and uh, that, that little saying at the end. So, so, Jonathan, you know, we're talking about how we feel about those we disagree with, but how we feel should be irrelevant. What's relevant is their brotherhood with us, their commonality with us. And we have to put them first because they're a brother in Christ right, or a sister right. in Christ. And that's where our theme text shouts out our spiritual response when under such duress to want to shut them down. What's the theme text say? Once again, Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing for selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests but also for the interests of others. You know, you think about this and these issues that had happened and were happening throughout the Christian church, I don't have any doubt that the Apostle Paul writes these kinds of things with these issues in mind. You're right. And he says, look, don't do anything from selfishness or empty conceit. I mean, again, sometimes we want to make our passionately held preferences into principles. And we say, therefore cannot move on this when in fact maybe when in fact a lot of people aren't going to like this but most likely there is room to move we just don't want to because we're so ingrained in it and that's what they had to deal with back in the early church so folks um we'd love to hear from you on this particular subject a lot to say a lot going on with it you're listening to Christian Questions Live talk to us now by calling 866-985-4255 or contact us and leave us a question or leave us a message at ChristianQuestions.com. Don't forget, send us those messages on through your app. We'd love to hear from you that way. Um, to compromise or not to compromise, Jonathan? That is the question. That is the question. Let's go through two more quotes. Again, two different quotes on compromise. Let's listen to the first one and see what it, it's telling us. And this is from Tom Cochran. Tragedy in life normally comes with betrayal and compromise and trading in your integrity and not having dignity in life. That's really where failure comes. So, so there's an equation of, of compromise to trading in your integrity. And you think, well, I don't want to do that. I guess I shouldn't compromise. No, you shouldn't compromise when it costs you in your integrity. You were, he's right about that. But you should compromise. Let's listen to another quote. Now, this quote, this next quote, Jonathan, is from a lawyer. Okay? It is. Right. We're not going to say who the lawyer is right up front. But just listen to the wisdom of this particular lawyer. Discourage litigation. Persuade your neighbors to compromise whenever you can. As a peacemaker, the lawyer has superior opportunity of being a good man. There will still be business enough. So this particular lawyer is saying, look, don't always go down the litigation road. Don't do that. You don't need to do that. Instead... Try to pursue compromise where people can come together. This guy was pretty smart. Yeah, Rick. It's Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so he's saying, yes, compromise. And the other quote is saying, but don't compromise at the expense of your integrity. Both are correct. 
But again, Jonathan, our integrity is not compromised when a preference that we may label as a principle can be negotiated. That's a mouthful. Put that one in the rewind <laughs> and let it be talked about. Okay, because that's a, there's there's a lot to be said right there. Let's let's go back to the um, to the American history lesson. Remember, we heard from the large states and in, in their perspective on representation, and they're saying, look, it's all based on population. What's the problem here? Well, the small states also had their perspective, and it was different. So the small states are all like, no way, baby, we're not going to do that. And uh, the New Jersey plan William Patterson came up with um, and is basically saying, look, we're not even ditching the articles, baby. We want the same gig as the articles. Each state has one vote, equal representation, because we're a union of states, not a people. What you talking about? And that would have kind of, in a sense, just been um, a convention to amend the Articles of, Con uh, the Conf of Confederation. So that's how they see it. So both of those plans are going to fail, and eventually we're going to have to come to a compromise. The Great Compromise! And of course, we'll get to the Great Compromise later on. But, you know, his, 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 his representation of this is, is very simple and very clear. The large states were saying, look, it's all about the people. And the small states were about, well, wait a minute. It's all about the federal, the United States is United States. It's about state representation. And just because some states have fewer people than others doesn't mean they should be represented in a lesser way. They're right. It's all about the people. They're right. What do you do? You have to find common ground. And see, Jonathan, you look for common ground, especially when you're trying to go the same direction. And that's one of the real keys here, is when you're trying to go the same direction, that's where compromise needs to shine, and that's where these scriptural principles really do uh, come out. So here's the question we have to ask ourselves. Are we welcoming in our principle-based disagreements to those we may see as foes, be they fellow Christians or even unbelievers? Are we welcoming them in what we see as our principle-based disagreements? Are we willing to share the goodness of our experience with them? You notice it's not, are we willing to beat them over the head with what we believe? It's, are we willing to share the goodness of our experience with them? That's what Paul and Barnabas did. And that's what happened in Acts chapter 15. And that's what all of the elders and the apostles ended up doing, as we shall see as this further develops. That brings us to our third biblical principle for approaching matters that need compromise. The first one was to sow seeds along the way to get people prepared for it. The second was to receive those with whom we are challenged, to, to, to welcome them with delight, even if they're on the opposite side. And what's the third biblical principle? Allow, rather than force the matter to be introduced in the context of the bigger and more important picture. So, Rick, this provokes compromise. So, allow the matter to come up naturally. Don't go and try to make it an issue. Okay, we all know why we're here, so let's get started. That's not the way they started this conversation. And again, there's great wisdom in the approach of the apostles and elders here. Let's go to Acts 15, again, verses 5 through 6. And they declared all things that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary for them to be circumcised and ordered to keep the law of Moses. 
the apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter. So in verse 4, in verse 4 there's an important point. What did they do first before they got into the discussion? Well, Rick, first and foremost was the report of spreading of the gospel to the Gentiles. And that would have been good news, right? Oh, fabulous. I mean, everybody would have been going, wow, this is awesome. You see how the gospel is spreading? You see what's happening? And, and so they spent time on something they were all in agreement with, and that is spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. So what, what's the next point here? Well, Rick, that opened this up. This dramatic report opened up the question at hand, for the report contradicted some beliefs. So because the report was all of these Gentile people are coming into Christianity, and then of course the Pharisee Christians are, are uh, you know, saying, yeah, see, there's a problem here. I mean, it's great news, but there's a problem with this great news. And that brings us to the last point here about these verses in terms of allowing the matter to be introduced, and what is it? Now came the announcement that this visit was for the settlement of this question. So it comes up naturally as the good news is being spread and being reported, and they say, well, there's a problem. And, you know, in my mind, I imagine that the apostles are, are looking at that and saying, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because that's why we came here to talk. I'm, I, I, we need to talk about your concern. In, and, and, Rick, that word consider means to stare at or to discern clearly. All right. So the idea is we have come together to discern uh, clearly this matter. And so imagine, Jonathan, you're, you're at odds with somebody, and you're going to sit down and have a conversation with them about this matter. And you say, I'm so glad you're here because we got together so I could listen to, so we could hear your concern. All of a sudden, you're not fighting. You're finding a way to come together, finding a way to, to communicate. That's how compromise can work. So do we have the wisdom and the patience to wait, to hear the dissension presented to us, and therefore to be able to respond to another's concern rather than bring it up ourselves as a tool of our disdain? You know, rather than bring it up saying, you know, you guys are really foolish about this. Will you just drop it? You see the evidence? I mean, come on. Get with the program. Open your ears. Open your mind. And, 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 and drop it already. Patience. We need <laughs> patience, Rick. And we need an open heart. We need an open heart. That's really what we need here. And, Jonathan, we are out of time for uh, this segment. So, uh, really, what it comes down to, folks, is we have to let our light so shine before men in such a way that they might see our good works and glorify our Father in Heaven, even amongst other Christians. No matter who we deal with, the world or the brotherhood, our dealings should bring godly light. That's the whole point of this. Folks, don't go away. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. And in this second, uh, second hour, we're going to discuss further the key points of not only bringing up compromise, but now how do you make it work? So uh, until the next hour, it's a simple thing. How much should Christian compromise? Think about it. And remember, we love hearing from our listeners. Let us know what you thought about today's topic. Suggest future topics. Start a conversation with us at ChristianQuestions.com and make sure to download our app. We'll be back shortly. Our family of listeners is growing every week. 
Thanks for listening live and through all our digital broadcasting channels. Spread the word to your friends to join our weekly conversation. It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions, our website, ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Thomas Monson once said, Courage, not compromise, brings the smile of God's approval. Uh Uh-oh, wait a minute. (laughs) Good evening, welcome back. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. And we're going to have to explain that one, Jonathan. Well, we must be doing the wrong study. We should be talking about courage, Rick, based on that quote. Yeah, but what are we talking about? Our question is, how much should Christians compromise? And our theme text is found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing for selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So we are talking about compromise, and we are looking at compromise from the standpoint of how the scriptures, especially in Acts chapter 15, teach us how to identify areas that need compromise, how to enter into those areas that need compromise, and how to successfully compromise without compromising your own integrity and without compromising principles. And that's the key. That's the key. Too often compromise is, is at the expense of our integrity or our principle, uh, uh, not necessarily what we think are principles, but godly principles. And we don't want that. But we do want compromise where others are trying to go in the same direction as us, and we want to be able to work together. How do you do that? Well, Jonathan, we touched on three biblical principles for approaching matters that need compromise with the world and with each other. So what were those three principles? Rick, the first is plant and cultivate the seeds necessary to deal with a possible controversy. And that gives clarity. Okay, so... so Planting seeds gives people the opportunity to realize there's an issue, and that gives clarity when the issue actually comes up to be dealt with. What's the second one? Receive those with whom we are challenged, and that tests our conscience. Because sometimes those with whom we are challenged, we look at as our enemies. And who wants to receive delightfully your enemy? You'd rather just smack them down and say, be done. (laughs) You know, go away. I don't want to hear what you have to say because you're wrong. But that's, it, it takes courage to receive them. It does. It does. And it takes humble, godly, uh, uh, a humble, godly approach to be able to do that. And it does test our conscience. If our conscience is tuned to God, we'll find a way to do that. And what's the third point? Allow rather than force the matter to be introduced in the context of the bigger and more important picture And that provokes compromise. Because if you're having a conversation and someone who sees it the other way brings up the issue, then you say, you know, I'm so glad you brought that up because we're here to talk about your concerns. That disarms the arguing. And that that sets up a a viable uh, context for a productive conversation. So all of the steps, uh, the steps that we discussed thus far towards executing a valuable compromise... These, those three, Jonathan, that you just mentioned, are the really difficult introductory steps. Here's the problem. Most of the time, we don't have the patience or the foresight for these steps because we allow the issues that we are passionate about to overrun our emotions 
rather than allowing the peace of God to overrule our hearts and minds. And that's a shame. That's where we lose out as Christians what an opportunity we could have if we could have the peace of God rule our hearts and minds and be able to discuss with those with whom we disagree. That's what, that's what look, that's what being a Christian really is. And that's looking at it from God's perspective. Yeah. We need to rise above you're, ourselves. You're right. You're right. And, and see, if we don't, if we don't see it from his perspective, we're going to lose. Just, yeah. It's simple as that. Because we're too human. We're too frail. We're too broken. And we're too set in our own ways. And oftentimes we, we disguise our preferences, our passionately held preferences, we disguise them as principles. And so we, we decide we can't budge. Let's go back to because this is the lesson of the founding of the United States, the founding of how representation actually came to a compromise to be able to work for the large states who said, hey, it's all about the people. And the small states that said, but aren't we the United States? Shouldn't it be about the states? Yes, it is all about the people. Yes, it is all about the states. What do you do? How do you compromise? Let's go back to the great compromise explained in five minutes by Hip Hughes History. Let's listen. Roger Sherman is the man, guys. He's the Connecticut guy. Came up with the Connecticut Compromise. It's a mishmash. It's a DJ mix, baby, between the New Jersey plan and the Virginia plan. And basically what he comes up with is, let's have an upper house, the Senate, um, where the states will get equal representation, right? Woo, woo, for the small states, um, that would eventually be appointed by the state legislatures. In a sense, that's the uh, state house. And then you have a lower house, a lower house that's elected by the people. And that would be later determined by census, um, and that would be proportional to the population of those states. So in a sense, both sides get what they want. All right, so Roger Sherman from Connecticut was the guy who figured out, hey, look, we can do both of these things, and everybody can find uh, common ground to work with. And it's interesting, because Roger Sherman, you know, both of us, we live in Connecticut, Yes, we do. Now, I don't know if you knew about this or not in terms of, of, of American history, Roger Sherman. I did not. Uh, just a little bit of my own background. I always thought Roger Sherman was a guy who was in, uh, in the, in the um, entertainment industry. And the reason I thought that is there was a theater down the road from us called the Roger Sherman Theater. <laughs> <laughs> He's from Connecticut. And, you know, years later I figured out that, oh, wait, they named the theater because Roger Sherman was a famous politician from early on i get it now but <laughs> as a kid he's like oh he must have been an actor or something <laughs> anyway all right uh, you know so, so let's get back to the biblical principles um we had the three biblical principles that we talked about in the first hour plant and cultivate seeds receive those with whom we are challenged and then allow things to come up the fourth biblical principle is a really important one and what is it debate with a proper attitude and, Rick, that gives clarity. And we really have to describe what that means. So let's go to the next section of our account, but just read the very first part of Acts chapter 15, verse, just, just the beginning of verse 7. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them... Okay, let's just pause right there. It says, after there had been much debate. Now, it's really easy for us to jump to a conclusion on that. They're debating. You know, when we had, we recently had the presidential debates... 
And the presidential debate was one person, there was a question asked, one person gave their point of view, and in giving their point of view, they usually, you know, really beat upon the other person, and then the other person says a few things about the first person, and they contradict each other, and they try to make the other one look foolish, and that's what we think a debate is. That's not what it was in the scriptures. No, it was a seeking, a questioning, it, it was a matter of controversy, but they wanted clarity. It was seeking and questioning. That's what the debates were then. Seeking and questioning. And Jonathan, if you're seeking, you know what you do? You say something and then you get quiet. And listen. And you listen for the other response and you say, oh, let me see if I can follow that reasoning. That's what the debate was. So after there had been much debate, the Apostle Peter stands up. Now you know something important is going to happen because Peter now who has been the leader of the apostles right from the very beginning, stands up and what does he say? My brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and, and become believers. And God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and in cleansing their hearts by faith, he has made no distinction between them and us. So the Apostle Peter begins to sum things up. And he says, look, you all know that I was given that vision to open the door to the Gentiles. And, and it, that was Cornelius and his household that's that right. he went to. And it was undisputable what happened. And Peter embraced it once he saw it and once he understood it. And he said, look, what we see is that the Holy Spirit, God's power and influence, has been given to them just like us. So Peter does what he's called to do. He leads. He leads by patiently hearing and then summing up the heated exchange with facts that, are all, that all of them are compelled to believe in. See, nobody was going to disagree with anything that the Apostle Peter said there because he had the credibility to say, yeah, I was given the vision. I know what's supposed to be happening here. It was powerful, powerful evidence to begin to bring this compromise forward. We welcome all comments or questions, even if you disagree with us. Give us a call. We're live at 866-985-FOR-ALL. That's 866-985-4255. Oh, yeah. Well, I don't know. If they disagree, we're just going to shut off their volume. <laughs> <laughs> Compromise, brother. <laughs> you got to be willing to listen. So, 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 so Peter puts it in perspective, all right? And he says, look, we all know these parts are... are um, are truthful. Let's go to verse 10. And, uh, yeah, verse 10. I'm sorry. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? That's a powerful, powerful question that Peter asks. And he's talking about the unbearable yoke of keeping the whole law. And nobody, nobody but Jesus ever accomplished that. Nobody. And he's saying, look, it's impossible. What are we trying to do here? Verse 11. On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So what he's saying is really simple. And Jonathan, he sums up the whole argument in that phrase. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Because here's the point. Here, now remember, circumcision was the big argument. And circumcision existed from the time of Abraham. 400 years before the Ten Commandments were given. 
So you have this incredibly entrenched belief that you have to be circumcised. But here's why they didn't. The Apostle Peter is saying to them, the whole point of Abraham and his, and his posterity being circumcised was as a symbol of the looking forward to the fulfillment of that great promise. And he's saying, when Jesus came, he fulfilled the promise. When he lived and he died, he paid the ransom so all the families of the earth could be blessed. And because the price has been paid, we no longer have to look forward to it happening. We can look backward and say, thank God it happened. So we'll, we act differently now. That's what he's he, saying. He nailed the law to the cross. And with it was the right of circumcision, because you're no longer waiting for it to happen. Now you're rejoicing the fact that it did happen. Well, Rick, I like the um, authority source that Peter uh, is coming from. Right. First of all, his apostleship, yeah. uh, his divine revelation he's talking about, and his observation. So, And it's interesting that you bring those three things up, because apostleship, he is an apostle, and everybody would have respected that. He had divine revelation, and everybody would have respected that. But Peter brought it one step further, and he looked at the things that were happening outside of his own experience, and he pointed to them and said, you know, how can we deny this? So, so you're right. The authority source was very powerful, and it was not just his own thinking, and that's the beauty of that. So Peter is being incredibly wise and humble in his leadership through this difficult time where compromise was so needed. And, and you know, you look at that, and for me, Jonathan, I, I look at that and think, what incredible wisdom, what humility to be such an example to say, yeah, you know, he could have just said, look, I know this is right. I'm basically the leader of the apostles, so let's just do this. But he pointed to the Apostle Paul's work and said, look, we can't deny what he has been doing. And a lot of times, you know, people, a lot of commentators like to pit Peter against Paul and say, well, you know, Paul's gospel was this and Peter's gospel was that. This is evidence that the two were on the same page, unequivocally. Right. And this is 20 years after Pentecost. So, so the proper attitude in handling situations that might demand compromise is to be unfettered by our emotions and to be filled with the mercy and glory of truth. How hard is that? You know, in our world, um, when we have issues with those around us, and, and Jonathan, there's a million issues. And, and, you know, actually next week, we're going to talk about political correctness. And the question for next week is, was Jesus politically correct? So we're going to get into a lot of these things, and this is kind of like an introduction for being able to deal with next week, because, you know, how do you deal with the, the, the kinds of social issues that we face today? What would Jesus have said? What we need to do is we need to internalize our Christianity. So, you know, to be able to deal with difficult situations, it's strictly an internal exercise of ourselves and not in any way a judgment of others. See, we have to be willing to exercise inside ourselves the Christianity and not be judgmental but instead be representative of, of God through Christ. And that reminds and me... Go ahead, go ahead, I'm saying. And sorry. following the principles of our theme text in Philippians, uh, be selfless. Um, think of others more than yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And don't, don't merely be thinking about your own interests. 
Right. But think about the interests of others. Put yourself in their in their position. Walk a mile in their shoes, so to speak. Proverbs thirteen ten is a good verse on this. Only by pride cometh contention, but with the well advised is wisdom. So we create contention with our pride, but we can be well well advised if we use wisdom. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, what do I bring to the table by way of content, content and attitude? When it comes to sitting at the table of potential compromise, what am I bringing? Am I bringing the contention or am I bringing the wisdom? Let's look at uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 29 to 32. Let no evil talk come out of your mouth, but only what is useful for building up, as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. All right, so your words may give grace to those who hear. I mean, think about the, the power of that. Our words can give grace to others. Do you want to do that, or do you want to beat them up? What's next? And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with which you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption. So, you know, by by having a humble attitude, we're going to keep the Holy Spirit of God within us without giving God grief. We don't want to do that. And finally, verses 31 and 32. Put away from yourselves all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander, together with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. That's how you approach the table of compromise, with those words. When I'm faced with matters of deep passion, be it with the brotherhood or with the world, am I willing to be clear of my own emotional baggage for the sake of the clarity of truth? And Jonathan, really, that's the issue here, is it's the clarity of truth that matters, not the passion of my perspective. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick. Tonight's episode is, How Much Should Christians Compromise? Coming up, once I have my attitude in its correct place, what about the other guy's attitude? (laughs) That's next. What about the other guy? You're listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome back. Tonight's episode is How Much Should Christians Compromise? We're live Monday evening from 8 to 10 Eastern. That means we're on right now. Join our conversation by calling 866-985-4255. That's 866-985-4ALL. Or you can message us on your app and go to our website and become a Twitter follower to learn about upcoming episodes and new updates posted. Our website has over 500 archived programs. Go to ChristianQuestions.com. All right, so we're talking about the art of compromise, and it's really getting powerful as we see true compromise can happen through great leadership, which is deeply humble. And that's what we saw in the Apostle Peter in the last segment there. But what about the other guy? <laughs> what about his attitude? Yeah, yeah. What about He's him? Gotta get it right. Now that I got mine set, <laughs> and you know, and sometimes that's the issue, isn't it? Sometimes we think, okay, okay, I'll listen to him. I'll I'll embrace him. I'll embrace him. And what about him? Yeah, and you know, and and that is such a such a telling feeling, such a telling emotion. Let it go. Don't worry 
about that. That's not your problem. It, what it is, is it's a challenge to present to that other person what you believe to be the most Christ-like attitude and let God take care of the rest. That's what about the other guy. It might not be the answer that you know people like, but hey, that's the right one, I think. So let's get to the next biblical principle for approaching matters that might need compromise with people in the world or with, with each other. What's the fifth principle? Well, Rick, that's listen with the intent of hearing, and that provokes compromise. And we've started talking about that already, the idea of really, truly listening so you can hear what the other person or the other people or the other side is presenting. And let's go to Acts 15, verse 12, and notice the attitude of the whole congregation. Jonathan, this to me is startling when you hear the sense of, of what the reactions were at this point in this very difficult conference. The whole assembly kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they told of all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. The whole assembly kept silence. And, and the way I envision that, you know, sometimes somebody can be quiet, but they're fidgeting and they're turning and they're looking at their watch. Of course, they didn't have watches in those days, but you know what I mean. <laughs> they're looking at the sundial outside the window. You know? <laughs> and, you know, they're, they're, they're getting frustrated and, and they're restless. This doesn't give the sense of that. This gives the sense of you could hear a pin drop attention. And that happened as Paul, as, as Barnabas and Paul were speaking of their incredible experiences, and this cooperative attitude was more easily achieved because of what the Apostle Peter had said before this. See, the way Peter handled things, it was the dissension had been heard, and then Peter established the undeniable facts of the path that Christianity had taken, and then led all to hear, through the Apostle Paul, the proof of the facts that the Apostle Peter had presented. Peter and Paul dovetailed perfectly in their establishment of open hearts and open minds for a really powerful compromise. And Rick, I think there was a lot of maturity on both sides. Well, there, and what this did is this approach drew out the best of both sides. You know, you can have maturity, but the, the, the wrong side of you can be drawn out. This drew out the very best of the most mature on all sides. And you're right about that. And that's such an important part of this thing. And you know what to me this is? This is the brilliance of unified and humble co-laboring. The mm. brilliance of unified and humble co-laboring. Let's and, and you know you talked about maturity. Let, let's yes. go to a verse that that talks to us about the idea that we need to grow up. Hebrews five twelve to fourteen. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic elements of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is unskilled in the word of righteousness. But solid food is for the mature for those whose faculties have been trained by practice to discuss good, distinguish good from evil. Okay, so in the book of Hebrews, the apostle... Now, this is really interesting. The, the apostle Paul is talking about, look, those of you who I'm writing to, he's writing this general letter, letter to Hebrew Christians. 
and he's saying you should be grown up, you should be at the point of teaching, but you still need you still need to the, the easily digestible parts of the word yet. You're not ready for the heavier stuff. You know, learning the fine art of compromise is a lesson for adult Christians, for it's truly a skill to be applied in the use of God's word. It is a difficult skill to apply. And the interesting thing is, Jonathan, I, I, I never made this connection before, just until the moment you were reading that verse. But Hebrews was written to the Hebrew Christians, to the right. Christians who had the Jewish background. And in the book of Hebrews, we believe the Apostle Paul wrote it, he lays out how central Jesus is to the whole plan of God. He lays it out again and again and again in all kinds of different ways. And the point is, let go of the law. Let go of the issues that created this, the need for this discussion. Let go of circumcision. Let go of the rights of the law. Because Jesus fulfilled it. And now he's here. And that's why he's saying, you're still, you're still, you're still just drinking milk. You need the strong meat. You've got to grow up more. You've got to see what's most important here. So, to compromise or not to compromise? That is the question. Let's go to two more quotes and see what they have to tell us about compromising, good or bad. There is a thin line between peace of the brave and peace of the hostage, between compromise, even calculated risk, and irresponsibility, and cup capitulation <laughs> and that's from ehud barak and so so what he's saying is there's a thin line between the peace of the brave and the peace of the hostage you got to be careful between comp compromise and capitulation are we capitulating or are we compromising and again folks it really comes down to finding what the principles are that you are standing for don't stand on your preferences in the same way that you stand on god's principles too often, we take our preferences, the way we want to see things, and we make them a principle because that's the way we understand the scriptures. And that's a shame because we're missing out on the ability to actually listen to someone who may see it differently. And the opportunity to hear that person speaking differently is a great opportunity for us to... Remember earlier in the program, the Apostle Paul came to Jerusalem to check himself? Yes. He wanted to make sure that he was running correctly, that he was doing he, the right things. He wanted other perspectives on what his, he was doing in his Christian walk. So I figure if the Apostle Paul should do that, maybe you and I should do it too. What do you think? Hey, that makes <laughs> sense. <laughs> All right, let's go to another quote here. Um, go ahead. This is from John Keegan. Soldiers, when committed to a task, can't compromise. It's unrelenting devotion to the standards of duty and courage. Absolute loyalty to others, not letting the task go until it's been done. So now there's the thought of the soldier, the uncompromising soldier who's got the task and cannot compromise. And, you know, Jonathan, that's the place you don't compromise. When you are in that you're battle right. and you're fighting against evil and your enemy, not, not your friend or your brother who sees it differently, but your enemy is on the other side. Satan and his minions are on the other side. There is no compromise. There is no room for that. There is no thought of that. You attack and you attack and you attack and you stand behind the shield of faith and, and, and through, through Jesus and you stand strong with the brotherhood together. There is no compromise because you're fighting against the enemy. But when we stand opposed to our friend, 
that's a different story. Uh, Trish came up. She's our, our, our call screener, and she said, capitulate? Like, what are you talking about, capitulate? <laughs> so, let me, and you know, it's a, it's a good point. That's not a word that we use too, too often. Capitulation is to, is to uh, um, uh, vary in our thinking. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go this way. Well, maybe, maybe I'll go that way. Well, maybe I should lean left. Uh, you know, leaning right's not so bad, but a little bit of left is better. But I'm not sh- capitulating. You're not sure. A little wishy-washy, Rick? Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> a lot wishy-washy. And you don't want to be like that. That's not what true compromise is. True compromise is finding a way where two uh, opposing perspectives can come together and say, we can both stand behind this. It's not perfect for what I want, but it works. And we together are stronger because we're standing behind it. That's what true compromise is. There is no capitulating. There's no, there's no uh, wishy-washiness, if you will, uh, behind that. So with that, let's go back to the great compromise in the history lesson brought to us by Hip Hughes History, the great compromise uh, in, in, the, in American history of uh, 1787 that determined how the the federal government would represent the people and the states how do they make both of those things work the the you had one side of the the, the viewpoint that said it's all about the people the other side said it's all about the states the compromise was this at the end of the day this is federalism man do you understand the great compromise you understand complex federalism because we're talking about the senate in a sense, being the federal body, right, it's representing the wishes of the United States of America, but it's also tied, in a sense, to the state legislatures, giving them something in the Constitution to stand on, where we have the lower house, which is a direct voice of the people, that is the federal house, that represents the United States of America. So federalists, people that believe that states are really just artificial lines that hold the people of the United States, they have a leg to stand on, which gives us two legs to stand on. <laughs> he gets very happy with what he's talking about. But, but what he says basically is that the, the Roger Sherman compromise basically said, okay, let's have the higher house, and that we'll call the Senate. And the Senate is going to be two uh, representatives from each state. And that gives those who say states need a voice, that gives them the ability for each state to have an equal voice. That's important because each state has a different economy, a different perspective, and different kinds of people. And then the lower house is the House of Representatives, and that was developed to have people in it representing the people of those states. And the bigger the state, the bigger the population, the more representatives you have. So now it weighs heavily toward the population. So one part of the government weighed heavily toward states, the other part toward the population, and both had voices. That's the way the compromise worked. It's a beautiful thing that took a lot of work to accomplish. And it took a lot of humility in terms of being able to accept it from both sides of the issue. So what about us? How do we better accept compromise? We've gone through five biblical principles for approaching matters that need compromise. Uh, Now we're up to the sixth one. And what is that sixth biblical principle, Jonathan? Give proper respect and honor to the teachings of those in positions of responsibility, especially apostolic authority, and those who are deeply seasoned, and that tests our conscience. So there's something to be said for giving proper respect and honor to the teachings of those 
who really are in positions of very strong authority. And, and Jonathan, I want to stress that this doesn't mean somebody who's in a position because they have a title. We're talking about someone who's in a position because, like the apostles, they were handpicked by Jesus to serve as those 12 pillars of the church. I don't know about you, but when I look at what the apostles say, I say, yes, sir. <laughs> because they are on a different level. And then it said it was a meeting of the apostles and the elders. Those who were, the, those, uh, were, were those individuals who were elected as spiritual leaders, who were seasoned, who had been tested, who you could see their works and say, yes, that's somebody I can truly respect. When those types of individuals are around us, we need to have great respect. Great, now, it doesn't mean that they're always right, but it means we need to truly, truly have respect for others. And I think that's the point. Let's go to Acts, again, Acts chapter 15, now verses 13 to 21. After they finished speaking, James, and this is Jesus' brother, not the Apostle James, replied, My brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how, Simon has related how God first looked favorably on the Gentiles to take from among them a people for his name. This agrees with the words of the prophets. Okay, and then he quotes Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. So James is the chairman of the meeting. And he speaks up, and he says, okay, heard all of the information, and now I am, I'm, I'm giving you my opinion as the chairman. That's what I'm supposed to do. And his authority source, Jonathan, is just kind of like what you talked about previously. What is it? It was... Um uh, the apostleship, but not his own. It was Peter's. Okay, and what else? And the Old Testament prophecy that he brought up in Amos 9, 11, and 12. And uh, observation. James is the chairman of the meeting and is now summing up the arguments. He speaks authoritatively and is, as we shall see, clearly represented by all. So he's got great respect of all, and he's speaking up, and he's putting it in perspective, and he's saying, this is how we should be looking at this whole matter. We've got to see it with clarity, with scriptural understanding. We've got to be able to, to grasp it and run with it. So let's go to verses 19 through 21 of Acts 15. Therefore, I have reached the decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God, but we should write to them to abstain only from things polluted by idols and from fornication and from whatever has been strangled and from blood. For in every city, for generations past, Moses has had those who proclaim him, for he has been read aloud every Sabbath in the synagogues. So James says, okay, we should tell them to, we should suggest to them several things. And so he comes up with a compromise. He doesn't violate Christian principle for the basis of Christianity as being just Jesus and not circumcision. He says, no, we can't do that. But here's what we can do to help everybody be part of it. He doesn't give in to any violation of the basic tenets of Christianity that shows all Christians free from the law, but he does give some suggested behavior designed to honor and respect those of a different opinion. And that's the key. He suggests behavior for everyone that shows that they honor and respect others who had a different opinion. And, and Jonathan, we got a, a comment in, uh, I think from the app, that says, these thoughts make me think of James 1.9. Let everyone to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And then, and then the, the commenter writes, we can't listen when we are so busy talking. There is a time for quietness, 
so we can listen. And that really does put it in perspective. That's what this is really all about. We need to be able to be like James here and be willing to embrace the idea of the thought of supporting somebody else's perspective because we're all trying to go in the same direction. And just because it doesn't fit perfectly with what I want doesn't mean it can't be something that I will do. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick. Tonight's episode, How Much Should Christians Compromise? Coming up, does it work? Do both sides buy into such a compromise? That's next. You're listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome back. Tonight's episode is How Much Should Christians Compromise? We're live Monday evening from 8 to 10 Eastern. That means we're on right now. Join our conversation by calling 866-985-4255. That's 866-985-4ALL. Or you can message us on your app. Christian Questions, a weekly habit that's good for you. Thanks for tuning us in every Monday evening. Join our conversation any day and time at ChristianQuestions.com. All right, so Jonathan, let's wrap up the American history lesson, the great compromise explained in five minutes from Hip Hughes History. And remember, it really is all about taking two differing perspectives from two different parties that want to get to the same end result, finding a way to put them together, have a compromise that everybody can win with. Is it perfect for the people of one side? No. Is it perfect for the people of the other side? No. Does it represent both? Yes. And that's what a real, true compromise is. So let's listen to this conclusion here. So check it out. That's the great compromise. Make sure, guys, that you understand the small state plan, equal representation, large state plan, rural representation based on population, and they come together to create the, the, the United States Congress. I don't, don't, this is not Illuminati. Click my face and check out the Fuse History, guys. We have like a gazillion videos for you to do the learning on the YouTubes. <laughs> you did the learning on the YouTubes. You heard him. <laughs> yeah, I don't talk like that. I don't know. I don't think I could do it. <laughs> but he gave a great history lesson. He he really helped to, to to put in perspective why do we have state representation and popular uh, um, personal representation and why the two are so important and how the two actually work together to create an environment where everybody actually does have a voice. So really, really very to me it was very fascinating to watch that compromise from 1787 and apply it to our world uh, today. So back to the Bible. Back to biblical principles for approaching matters that need compromise, compromise with the world and compromise with each other. And again, compromise, Jonathan, really comes into play when two separate parties that disagree are trying to go into the same direction. When you're trying to go the same direction, that's when a compromise can happen. If you are there just to butt heads, a compromise is just going to keep you from killing each other. I suppose that's good, <laughs> but... But it's not going to be. It's not going to be lasting. It's not going to be life changing. True spiritual compromises can actually be life changing. What's the seventh biblical principle? Well, Rick, it's see the conclusions as driven by the Holy Spirit's influence on the congregation. And what does that one do? 
Well, that gives clarity. It tests conscience and provokes compromise. So those three things, you've, you've mentioned those throughout the entire program. Clarity, conscience, compromise. If we can get our arms around being clear on the matter, making sure our conscience is rightly tuned and focused, and then be willing to accept and deal with and, and, and pursue compromise, boy, we can go far. And again, it's not compromising your integrity. It's not compromising principles. But it is compromising sometimes things that we call principles but are really our own passionate preferences. That's hard. That is. Acts 15, 22 to 31. And I'm going to interrupt you a lot on this one. Then the apostles and the elders, with the consent of the whole church, decided to choose men from among their members and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. All right, so with the consent of the whole church. Now they're all working together, and it's the apostles and the elders. There's power in this decision-making here. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leaders among the brothers, and with the following letter. Okay, pause the right there. They sent them with the following letter. There, there's several points here. So they put... They're thinking in writing. So that adds a tremendous level of credibility. They put their thinking of, about this compromise in writing. That's the first point. Go ahead. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the believers of Gentile origin in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia, greetings. Since we have heard that certain persons who have gone out from us, though not with no instruction from us, have said things to disturb you and have unsettled your mind. Okay, let's pause there for a second. So, so the letter starts, and it's specifically to believers of Gentile origin. And it says, the second point here is they're clarifying. There have been people who've come out from us, not that we sent them out, but they came from our direction, that have disturbed you. And we need to address that. So they are clarifying what's happened and they're saying, look, this has not been some directive that you've been sent. These are just individuals who are very zealous to, to, to proclaim what they believe to be true. What happens next? We have decided unanimously to choose representatives and send them to you, along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Okay, okay, pause there again. Okay. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, but, so we've decided unanimously. So there is unity in this. You know, it's not like, well, you know, we, we had an arm wrestle and the stronger guy won, and so now that's what we're doing. This is, this is our group decision. And then, and then the, the, so there's the, there's the unity. And then it says, we chose representatives to send to you with Barnabas and Paul. So Not only Barnabas and Paul, but beloved Barnabas and Paul. So they're saying, we don't even want you to take the, the word of Barnabas and Paul because they were with you before. We're sending some people from here to represent what was said. That's how diligent they're being in, in making sure that they're co-laboring to deliver this, this response is so utterly clear. And now finish the verses. Which they have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. So when it talks about Barnabas and Paul having risked their lives for the sake of our Lord, they're really saying to them, we recognize the power of God through them, and we have heard what they have said. And so they're giving great comfort to the Gentile Christians. There's, again, 
They put it in writing. They clarify what happened. There's unity in it. There's co-laboring. And then there's the praise for those who have put their lives on the line. So you, you notice this complete unity of action in this, in this a- activity here. The honesty in correcting erroneous actions and the willingness to send out representatives in addition to Paul and Barnabas as verifying evidence of their decision. I mean, Jonathan, this is this is brilliance. This it is. this is stepping up to a level that, unfortunately, in the world in which we live, you can you you, you only read about. You don't. We don't see this kind of action and attitude and compromise anymore, do we? They took full responsibility, and and they want it to be clear. Right. Right. And they went way out of their way to make it clear by putting it in writing, by sending additional representatives. They were so concerned that the Gentile Christians were not going to be stumbled by all of these other things, that they wanted to make sure that the preciousness of those new Christian lives was protected. And they realized how important it was to protect it. That, and how did they get to that point? By talking about it. By coming together and saying, I see that you have an issue with this. Let's, let's hear it. Let's discuss it. Let's put it on the table. Let's not debate the way we do today, but let's debate in a way that brings out the best of you so I can hear it, so I can see it, so I can appreciate it, so I can follow it, and then I can share with you the best of me so you can do all those things the other way. And Jonathan, when you do that, compromise happens. Because you're trying to connect. Instead it's a beautiful of, thing. <laughs> it is. And, and, and we just so easily miss the boat when we get ourselves so twisted up in knots that, but, but he's so wrong. <laughs> and that's not, that's not what Christianity is built on. Look at Acts chapter 15. You don't get a sense of that anywhere. So let's finish up now. Acts chapter 15 verses, uh, well, not quite finishing, but verses 28 and 29. Right now, for for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to impose on you no further burden than these essentials: that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So the recommendation was to act in a way that would respect the consciences of those whose viewpoint was not yet fully mature in Christ. Now, did they have to abstain from what had been sacrificed to idols? They really didn't have to. I mean, there there was no, that was not part of the inherent Christianity. Did they have to abstain from from blood? No. That wasn't part, inherently part of Christianity. And from what was strangled, you know, in, in terms of eating meat? No. That wasn't part of Christianity. From fornication? Yes. <laughs> that, Absolutely. That's the yes. That's there. There's no compromise there. Period. End of statement. You know, you can't, you can't say any more than that. But the point is, Jonathan, there are, there are several things brought up here that, you know, if you're, not, if you're not a mature Christian, you might look at this and say, huh, I don't know if I like this so much. You know, who are they telling me to, to do these things? So, so you know, we want to entertain that, that thought um, in, in a moment. But remember, these points were brought up to honor the perspective of those who kept saying, no, you have to be circumcised to be a Christian. 
And those who said that backed off and said, okay, you don't have to be circumcised. I get that. But there's, there's some things that you should do. And in their wisdom, they said, okay, we can understand that. We know where you're coming from. It's okay. We can, we can work with that. And so they passed that on. So what's the reaction? Once you deliver that to a whole different group of Christians that doesn't have your background, doesn't have the Judaism behind you, doesn't have any of those things, what is their reaction? Well, let's look at verses 30 and 31 of Acts chapter 15 and find out. So they were sent off and went down to Antioch. And when they gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When its members read it, they rejoiced at the exaltation. So there's something very interesting here. They rejoiced at the exhortation, even though it may not have been what they fully wanted to hear. The reception of this compromise uh, was received with rejoicing, which gives us insight into the spiritual maturity of those at Antioch. See, a babe in Christ would probably, like I mentioned before, grumble, thinking that the, these others had no right to impose anything upon me. You know, and sure, you're right, they don't. But what a privilege you lose by having that attitude. Rather say, look, I understand this, this conclusion was come to through great difficulty and, and, and discussion and wisdom and power and love all working together. And if the apostles and elders said that this is what we ought to do to help everyone get along well together, why can't I do it? So it says they rejoiced at the exhortation. And it just shows incredible, incredible maturity on their part. And I look at that and think, now would we have that kind of maturity? Or would we say... All right, I'm going to have to do it because those, those, they're just too immature to be able to just let things go. So I guess I'll do it because I guess I got it because they're just so mature. Jeez, I wish they'd grow up. The beauty of Christianity coming together in such a way was amazing. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it really broke down walls between the Jewish Christians and the Gentiles. And that was the whole point of the exercise. The entire point of the whole thing was to break down those walls, was to say, we are one body. Let's find a way to work together. Even if it's not perfect, working together in an imperfect way is way better than being individuals as perfectly as we think we can. Because that's what Christianity is built upon. So the outcome of all this is the breathtaking beauty of the body of Christ. And that is why we compromise. For that breathtaking beauty of the body of Christ. So Jonathan, our last scripture for the evening will be Ephesians chapter 2. Selected verses from verses 14 through 22. For he is our peace. In his flesh he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with his commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in the place of two, thus making peace. See, so here's the, <laughs> the beauty of the Apostle Paul writing this. 
he's even though you know now this particular compromise at Jerusalem had a had a ripple effect into all of the churches and so forth but he writes to the Ephesians and he says look it's Jesus who broke down the walls of hostility between us it's Jesus who did it because he is the one common denominator that those of a Jewish background and those of a Gentile background we can come together and we can focus on that and it's saying that is what is more important than where I come from and where you come from. And, he, and he, it's, so, it's so powerful. He, takes, he, he creates one new humanity in place of the two. It's, it's kind of like a marriage. Becoming, nice. becoming one body. Being able to work together as one. I mean, there's great, great power in that. And let's go to verses 20 through 22 of Ephesians chapter 2. Build upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, and in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. So, again, it's all about Jesus. It's not about your perspective or your opinion and my opinion. It's about Jesus being the single centerpiece. So instead of circumcision and the law, it's Jesus. Instead of pagan rituals, it's Jesus. Instead of everything else in life, it's Jesus. So if our working together means we have to compromise certain things so we can come closer to the hub, to the centerpiece of Jesus... And then let it be so with our compromises, godly compromise. And, and Jonathan, this to me, this is this is just a powerful, powerful thought. Godly compromise is one of the highest and most sacred gifts of sacrifice that we can give to God. Again, godly compromise, high sacred gift of sacrifice that we can give to God because it shows our care and respect for others while keeping our highest spiritual principles intact. And again, there is a big difference between keeping our spiritual principles intact and keeping our spiritual preferences that we passionately hold and call principles intact. One of them has got to be held on to. The other we need to be able to negotiate on. And Romans 12.10, in honor preferring one another. And what a great way to end, in honor preferring one another, because the other we are preferring in this particular instance is going in the same direction that we are going. It's all for the honor of God through Christ. It's all because we want to follow in Jesus' footsteps. And Jesus, when you think about compromise, he gave up his human will to do the will of God. There was not even a compromise. He said, look, I will not do anything that I would prefer to do as a human being. I will do everything to honestly honor God. That's what should drive our compromises. Folks, we hope you've enjoyed being with us tonight. We certainly enjoyed being with you. We'll be back again next week with another subject. But till then, godly compromise. Think about it. And remember, we love hearing from our listeners. Let us know what you thought about today's topic. Suggest future topics. Start a conversation with us at ChristianQuestions.com. 